You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to the Brandy Show. Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Brandstatter, and this is my podcast. We'll get together every week to talk about football, primarily the University of Michigan Wolverines and the Big Ten Conference, with occasional forays into the national picture. We'll also keep up with the Detroit Lions and the NFL. Along the way, we'll have some surprises. We'll certainly have some fun guests and take a tangent or two that has nothing to do with football, like old movies or cooking. Who knows what? Sit back and relax and enjoy The Brandy Show. Welcome, everybody. It's good to have you along uh, for this show three of our podcast, uh, The Brandy Show. Thanks for being with us. Today's got a big show. We're going to have an update on the Lions after week two of the preseason. Just my impressions and watching from the outside of the press box for the first time in 31 years. We're also going to talk about a retirement in college football. Yes, a retirement in college football. Uh, stay with us. You'll hear about that. Dick Honig is going to join us. Dick is the uh, rules expert for the Brandy Show. He's going to talk about some new college football rules this season that you as a fan will be interested in hearing about. We're also going to discuss Jim Harbaugh. He named his starting quarterback this uh, past week. And that's kind of odd. Jim normally doesn't do that. I'll talk about that a little bit. Also, I'm going to start a new feature, and I'd like your feedback on that. It's called Trivia 2D. And the reason I'm running this is because over the course of 30 years of broadcasting football games, I've put together what's called a broadcaster's cheat sheet. It's called a two-deep where I have on paper in front of me when I broadcast the games, the players' numbers and their weights and their heights and things like that that help me identify them when I'm broadcasting the game. And I've got a whole bunch of these things over 30 years. The Lions over 30 years, Michigan over 30 years, Michigan State. Uh, I've got all the opponents of the Lions and the NFL. And so I thought I'd do is take advantage and use these a little bit. For instance, today, I'm going to have you out there guess, and just in your mind as you're listening to the show, what was the 2003 Lions offense like? Who played for that offense. Where were they drafted? Little things like that. And I thought that'd be fun for you guys to kind of get involved interactively with the Brandy Show and think on your mind, where was that team? Where was I when that team was playing? Do I remember who those starters were on offense? Some of it may be a little bit surprising for you. So I'm going to start that. It's called Trivia 2D. We'll get to that a little later in the show. In the meantime, you can start thinking about it. The 2003 Lions offense. Who was starting and who were the two deeps on that team? We'll be joined also, special guest, this is so much fun, Eli Zaret is going to be with us. He's a longtime sports broadcaster in Detroit, known for his outspoken nature. Eli's starting a podcast also called Eli Zaret Unfiltered. So we're going to talk about that. It will be fun. Uh, he's a beauty. He and I have a history back in Detroit. Also, there's nothing new on Ohio State. We talked about that last week. Urban Meyer and his issues with the domestic abuse charges to one of his assistant coaches. They are Today, as we tape this program, uh, the Ohio State Board of Trustees are looking at the investigation results. So we don't have any issues on that. We don't have anything to talk about until those uh, issues are decided by the investigation. We'll talk about that maybe next week. So let's get to our first topic, the Lions. And I want you all to realize it's only the preseason, so please take a breath. Yes, they're 0-2, and they lost to the Giants last week, 30-17. to Now, 
I may sound like a guy that is pulling my punches here, but I'm not. I don't want to get crazy about the preseason because it doesn't matter. These games don't matter. What matters is what you do in September. But there are a couple of things on my radar, so give me a little, cut me a little slack here. A couple of things I looked at that I think are interesting and important in the preseason. The theoretic Amir Abdullah battle. Why do I call it a battle between the two? Because I think the Lions are going to go into the season with three running backs. And the first two, we know who they are. LeGarrette Blunt and the rookie Carrion Johnson. So I think the Lions will probably carry three backs. So Riddick and Abdullah, in my opinion, are the two guys fighting for that third back position. And Theo Riddick is a great receiver. He's a wonderful route runner, very explosive. And he showed big things against the Giants with the biggest play offensively that the Lions had against them. Abdullah, on the meantime, had some problems with ball security. Fumbled twice. And the thing that coaches don't like when you're in the preseason is fundamentals if you're not executing the fundamentals. The fundamentals for a running back is ball security. You must hold on to the football. That is so key. And for Amir Abdullah, who has a reputation for being a fumbler, that just is going totally against his opportunity to make this team, given the fact that I think he's in a battle for that third running spot. The other issue was pass protection. You know, Matthew Stafford goes in two series. He gets sacked twice. You cannot let that happen to number nine for the Detroit Lions. Uh, so the pass protection, I think, has to get better. And again, it's only preseason, but that pass protection must be better. The other thing that bothered me a little bit, and these are not scheme things. So understand, this is not about scheme. It's about what they need to do and execute these fundamentals. And a couple of weeks that we've seen them in preseason, uh, their defense has given up runs wide, which means they've lost contain. And when you lose contain, uh, that's the worst thing a defense can do because you let a ball carrier outside the defense and he's able to make yardage. And there always has to be a man upfield. It's fundamental. you got to have a guy upfield on the outside to stop a ball carrier or the ball from getting outside to the sideline. And I think the Lions over the first two preseason games have not done that. Now, I understand they're playing vanilla. You know, defensively, they're doing a lot of different things under Matt Patricia's new deal. But the fact of the matter remains, fundamentally, you've got to have a guy outside. Those are the three things I look at over the first two preseason games that have bothered me a bit about the Lions. And those are the things, in my opinion, that they have to shore up. Second topic today, we'll talk about Grant Newsom. He retired. Two years ago, he was the starting offensive tackle for the Michigan Wolverines, and he was on his way to a possible pro career. This past week, he retired from any future football because of an injury. Now, why do I want to go here? Because this story is more typical of the everyday college football player. Grant's story is this. He had a serious injury during a game, almost lost a leg. He had to go to the hospital, spent weeks in the hospital, numerous surgeries. He had compartment syndrome in his leg, and it was really a tough injury to come back from. But he wanted to try. Two years of rehab with hopes of coming back, working, sweating, dreaming, all of it on the periphery of the team. He was a part of the team, but he also wasn't a part. For a guy that's been part of a team, do you know how tough that is? Then recently, doctors gave him the verdict. His career was over. 
not for a lack of any effort or desire on his part. Rather, his body betrayed him. And in a letter he released to Twitter, um, he told people why. And I think this is important to understand the emotions of a young man who for his entire life had a dream to go on and play in the National Football League. And he was living that dream. And all of a sudden, in a flash, it stops. So here is a portion of the letter that Grant wrote. God has graced me with a platform, with a testimony, and with a chance to hopefully make a difference in the lives of many. I don't know what the future ultimately holds for me, but I know that I will spend it working to help others, to repay the kindness of everyone who has touched my life over these last two years, to try to make the world a better place for my own generation and those who follow it. In the short term, Coach Harbaugh has graciously allowed me to stay with the team as a student coach while I'll be working with the tight ends while I complete my master's degree. So I have made undoubtedly the most difficult decision of my life and will medically retire from football. This is a college junior. (laughs) I, I, I don't know whether I could have written that or I could have expressed myself like that after having my dream go away and gone through the two years of rehab that he's gone through. I just think this kid needs to be applauded for who he is, his perspective on life, and what's going on, and what college football can do for a young man. Two years ago when he started this journey, or actually four years ago, I'm not sure that Grant Newsom could have written something like that. But now after having gone through it all, he writes that. And he finishes his letter with this. So to any kids reading this or anyone who has hopes and dreams but fear they may be dashed, yes, not all stories have a happy ending that you envision, but all stories have meaning and all stories are worth living. This kid should be writing a book somewhere. I just wanted to mention that about Grant Newsom because it touched me. Hopefully it touches you to show you what kind of young man plays this game. So the next time you see the NFL draft or the Heisman Award, think of Grant Newsom. He's a big part of the great game of college football. Most of the young men you see on Saturdays won't get drafted. They won't be playing for money. Instead, they're going to become teachers, high school coaches, lawyers, doctors, broadcasters, builders, sales execs, sales execs. Sometimes their dreams like grants don't come true, but they make new dreams. So next time you're disappointed in a loss and you're upset because your team didn't win, think about Grant and all the kids that played on that team and their disappointment and really try to look at things from their perspective. If you look at it from the perspective that Grant Newsom showed, you'll be a better person. You'll have better opportunity and better lessons to tell your kids. That's what's important, in my opinion, about why Grant Newsom retired medically from football. Great story. You can tell it to anybody you can. This kid is a tremendous, tremendous example of what college football can do. Speaking of college football, Jim Harbaugh, this past week, named his starter at quarterback. Now, why is that a big deal? Because two years ago, if you remember, Jim Harbaugh didn't name a starter until the week of the game. Last year, it was between John O'Corn and Wilton Spate before they played Florida down in Dallas, and he didn't let anybody know until they actually got to Dallas. And ultimately, O'Corn actually played a little bit in that game against Dallas while Spate was the starter. So 
naming Shea Patterson the starter for this team as they enter the week before they play Notre Dame, I think is a big deal because to me, it tells you something that over the course of the early practices and the early fall camp, Shea Patterson has separated himself from the other guys looking for the job. And to me, that's really important because in the past, Jim hasn't named a guy this early, but he feels comfortable enough with the job that Shea Patterson has done in the first two weeks of fall camp that he is running this team offensively, he is running the offense efficiently the way he wants it, I think it speaks volumes about Shea Patterson and how he has come in and adjusted and adapted to the Michigan offense. And I think you're going to see an interesting and new offense with a leadership from the quarterback position that I think is going to be decisive and much better play from the quarterback position. Naming the quarterback, I know a lot of people think it makes a lot of – it doesn't make that big a deal. But to me – Two weeks before kickoff, Jim names that guy the quarterback. Given his past history, that to me tells me that uh, Shea Patterson has done a great job over the first couple of weeks, and I'm looking forward to what Michigan does uh, against Notre Dame offensively, particularly with Shea Patterson at the helm. By the way, just a promo for next week. We're going to talk about that Michigan-Notre Dame game big time. We're going to have Angelique Shangelis on. And she's going to talk about that game, Michigan's chances this year, the Big Ten and college football in general. It's going to be our college football preview show, so make sure you don't miss that. Coming up next, Too Deep Trivia. Are you as excited as I am? (laughs) Who do you remember from the 2003 Lions offense? That's coming up next. The Brandy Show is a Zing Media Group production. Zing Media Group. Tell your story. Welcome back, everybody, and we're going to go to Trivia 2D. If you're interested and you like this feature, get a hold of us. Uh, give us some feedback. Be interactive. Uh, go to thebrandyshow.com and give us some questions, give us some thoughts. But this is a feature I think you'll like. I told you I've done 30 years of football, pro and college, and I've got all these 2D cheat sheets that I use in the broadcast. And at the top of the show, I told you about this week's Trivia 2D. The 2003 Detroit Lions starting offense. Now, if you've been thinking about it, you're wondering who played wide receiver on that team. That's kind of fun. Everybody likes trivia. So I've got my two deep right here, and I'm going to give you the starting lineup for the Detroit Lions. Okay, let's start with the offensive line. How many of you got this right? Left tackle number 76, Jeff Backus. He was the Lions' number one pick in 01. This is the 2003 starting lineup, so he was starting his third year at Michigan. Next to Bacchus at left guard was Eric Beverly. Dominic Rayola was the center. Remember Dom in his third year out of Nebraska? Ray Brown was the right guard, number 61. Ray was in his 16th year that year. He was an unrestricted free agent out of San Francisco. And this was his first year with the Lions, played right, ta- right guard. And then at right tackle... You won't ever remember this one, or you might want to forget him. Stalker McDougal, in his fourth year out of Oklahoma, he was a number one draft pick in 2000 for the Lions, played right tackle. Uh, never really got to where they thought Stalker would be, but he was the right tackle in the starting lineup. They were backed up by Victor Rogers at left tackle. Josh Lovelady was the right guard. Matt Joyce, the right tackle. The tight ends for that team. Are you ready? Michael Ricks was the starting tight end in his sixth year out of Stephen Austin. He was an unrestricted free agent 
from the Kansas City Chiefs that year. He was backed up by John Owens and Casey Fitzsimmons, who was a rookie. And Casey Fitzsimmons, out of Carroll College, small little Carroll College, he made the team as an undrafted free agent. That was something. Now, wide receivers, you'll love this one, because I know everybody who's a Lions fan thought, what are they doing? Bill Schrader, remember they got Bill Schrader from the Green Bay Packers. He was an unrestricted free agent. He started at wide receiver. He was in his eighth year of Wisconsin, out of Wisconsin lacrosse, and, and Schrader really never made the impact they wanted. Backing him up was Reggie Swinton. At the other wide receiver, and everybody will remember this pick, the number one pick in 2003 in the draft for the Lions, Michigan State's Charles Rogers. Great receiver for the Spartans in his day. Uh, came out and started his first year with the Lions. Uh, really such big play potential. Hurt himself with a broken collarbone and then never, ever really came back from that. It's kind of sad because Charles was one of the top players uh, in the country. Lions drafted him number one for season tickets and everything else. But Charles just kind of was a bit of a bust because of the injuries and the problems he had. Charles Rogers uh, was the one starting wide receiver. They also had David Kirkus and Azahir Hakim was also another wide receiver. At fullback, Corey Schlesinger backed up by Stephen Trail. Schlesinger was drafted in the sixth round in 95 out of Nebraska. Great, great uh, fullback. I loved how Corey played the game. He used to bend his face masks when he would block linebackers. That's how good Corey was. Running back. A free agent out of Buffalo his first year, Sean Bryson played running back for the Lions, and he was backed up by Avon Coborn, who was a free agent out of West Virginia. Olandis Gary he came to the Lions in a trade from Buffalo, and Artos Pinner. Those are the four running backs the Lions had. The quarterback on that 2003 Lions offense, Joey Harrington. Remember Joey Harrington? Drafted number one in 2 he was in his second year out of Oregon. Backing him up was Mike McMahon out of Rutgers. And the third quarterback on that roster was Ty Detmer. Uh, he came to the Lions in a trade from Cleveland in 01. Those are your starting lineups. That's trivia too deep for this week. And uh, hopefully you like that. Next week, who knows? We'll go to a year. Maybe we'll do Michigan next week, one year in the past, and give you their starting lineup on defense. It's going to be kind of fun, I think. Let me know. If you got any feedback, give me a holler on thebrandyshow.com. Don't go away. Coming up next, our rules expert, Dick Honig, talks about new things you'll see in college football this season. The Brandy Show is a Zing Media Group production. Zing Media Group, tell your story. We're joined now by longtime referee, longtime official in the Big Ten for football, Dick Honig. Dick, how are you? Doing well. Very well. Great summer. Yeah, it is a great summer. Now summer's over. Let me ask you this. How long were you an official for the Big Ten? And you still are to some degree, aren't you? Yeah, I was 22 years on the field, 11 years in replay, and now I'm in the uh, third year as the rules analyst for the Big Ten Network. Well, that's great, which means we're talking to the right guy because we're going to talk about new college football rules this coming season. The season starts in about a week and a half. Now, here's what I want to know. The biggest rule is the fair catch on kickoffs. Now, folks out there who aren't aware of that, you can now fair catch a kickoff and get the ball at the 25. Is that accurate? 
That is correct. <clears throat> but you must make the catch. That is the, the key. If you signal for a fair catch and you catch the ball, you get the ball at the 25-yard line. If you muff that ball and it hits the ground, you don't get that option. If your teammate catches it, even though you have made the fair catch signal, the ball stays where you you uh, you have caught the ball, or he has caught the ball. So it's basically so, just like a punt, right? That is right. That is the idea is to take some of the the, the blocking out of the uh, the kickoffs. That is a big concern because of injuries. Uh, that uh, that they try to eliminate and give somebody the uh, give the teams the option of maybe making this fair catch and and getting the ball at the twenty five yard line without actually having a running play. Right, but if you do make the catch and you don't signal for a fair catch, it's a normal kickoff, right? It's a normal kickoff, and you that can return correct. it and do whatever you want to do with it. Correct. Okay. What if the ball goes through the end zone? Same old deal. Same rule. Through I mean, the end zone? All the other rules remain the same. Okay. Yes. You can touch the ball at the five-yard line as long as you don't possess it. It rolls into the end zone. You go in and recover it, which you're required to do. Uh, it is a touchback, and you get the ball at the 25-yard line. All right. The other rule is about uniform. The players now have to have pants that actually cover their knees. Uh, this was a required deal by the NCAA on rules, and you officials have to enforce that. And this is a serious rule, isn't it? Well, it can be very serious if you look at it in one respect. The idea is to get the biker shorts that you saw last year out of the game. That hasn't been part of the game. That was never supposed to be part of the game. But we've let things slide. Now now we're reversing it 180 degrees and saying, all right, now you're going to have a uniform that complies. And the pants covering the knees with a pad is now required. So take this scenario. Now everybody has been told we're working on this through all of the scrimmages that go on in this preseason. We're talking to teams. Everybody's got these rules in front of them. Now the first game of the season, here comes your extra point guy or your field goal guy, and he has biker shorts. The clock is running. The 25-second clock is running. He comes in. We say, you cannot play. You must go off. He's got to go off. The clock still runs. So unless they take a timeout or they take the delay a game, that's going to happen. So officials make the determination. If your pants don't meet the required uh, cover your knee with a knee pad, you got to go off the field. Is it just for a play until you get your pants fixed? Yes, correct. Okay, okay. The other uh, rule, uh, blocks below the waist, that's kind of a new uh, twist. Give us that rundown. Okay, let's let's just start with what doesn't change. And it didn't change that the lineman can still block below the waist. A wide receiver cannot come back towards the ball or the spot of the snap and block below the waist. Uh, a lineman that's in, in the ball remains with the quarterback and block low legally. What has changed is that a block that is low one must be directly from the front, and I mean directly. So I can't just turn my head and you hit me from the side and say it's legal. I have to be directly. I have to be. They, they've talked about 10 to 2 on a clock, and that's the, the, the view a guy has to have. Well, his hips must be turned now. Everything must be from directly in front of that guy that is being blocked or the guy that is doing the block. In addition to that, 
no low blocks are legal beyond five yards from the line of scrimmage. Nobody can block low beyond five yards the line of scrimmage. And what's the penalty on that, Dick? It's 15 yards blocked below the waist. Wow. That's a difficult call. It, it's big. Now, the little guys, anybody still can block within that five yards below the waist as long as it is away from the spot of the snap. So we, we still allow block below the waist will never go because a back has the responsibility at times to be blocking a tackle or a guard that's coming in from the defense. We're talking little against big. Right. If he wasn't allowed to, to cut that guy, then then you could have a train wreck. Yeah, that's, I was going to say, that's and, even more dangerous to the player, the little guy. So you got to yeah. give him a shot at that, right? Yes, right. And the same thing with the de- defensive back. With linemen pulling and coming out, within that five yards, he can still cut legally from the front. He can cut that uh, player out there, that guard or tackle that's leading the uh, the, re- the, uh, the runner. Also, the other thing that the, the rules committee's done is talking about pace of play. They're trying to pick up the pace of play with their 40-second clock and, and when the ball is ready for play to kind of move things along a little bit. They really have tried to get this college football with television and everything under three and a half to four hours a game. And part of it is with the rules, right? Absolutely. I think that's, uh, that, that is their prime objective is to actually not to get it to four, probably get it closer to three hours uh, in a game situation. But they now have set there's going to be a clock after a touchdown. There's going to be a 40-second clock. Now, that could vary a little bit if replay gets involved which they they have to uh, they have to do but then we have the extra point and now we have if we don't have a television timeout then there's a 40 second clock to get players out for the kickoff the only thing that you're going to see and actually when i say you're going to see if you're sitting in the stands you're going to see in the big 10 a clock that reads x number of seconds or minutes and seconds and there is what is called a TV or timeout clock, and there'll be a, if it's two minutes and thirty seconds for an ad, then there's going to be a clock up there that reads two minutes and thirty seconds, and that runs from the end of the play or end of the extra point until the uh, the, the ball is next to be snapped. Which again, they're trying to let everybody know what's going on in the stadium particularly not necessarily but it affects you as a broadcaster uh, in the in the booth does Notre Dame have to follow that rule because usually no, commercial... that is a big that That's... is a big 10 I... situation I, I was gonna you're say... going to be you're going to be ever in a lifetime at Notre Dame <laughs> Because their commercials run five minutes sometimes That's exactly <laughs> okay last question Dick there is a 10 second runoff now after a replay inside of a minute of the game and the half, what's the deal on that? Yes, and when replay before, when replay stops a play and they, they reverse a call from a dead clock. Now, again, a, a dead clock would mean there's a first down, there's a touchdown, something happens that kills the clock at the end of the play. When they reverse a play, that it, at the end of that play, the clock would have been running. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Instead of making a first down, they're short of a first down. We've awarded a first down. They're short of the first down. We'll reverse it to short, and the clock would have been running. Then in those situations, uh, because we've stopped the clock as officials, 
we then will have the option of running or require to run a 10-second runoff uh, at the end of that play and then start the clock on the ready-for-play or when uh, the officials were ready to, to start. And that's inside a minute and inside a minute to go at inside half. Inside one and minute, that what is ha- correct. What happens if that replay happens and there's less than 10 seconds? Does that mean game, the game's over or the uh, over. half is over? Yeah, the Lions play. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. So that when they right. replayed it, they ran 10 seconds off. That basically ends the game. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. I can see that so. somewhere coming back to haunt everybody a little bit, Dick. Uh, it could, but it's in the fairness of the rules. If you incorrectly judge a play and the clock would have been running, it's near impossible to get another play run without a 10-second time period. Okay. Hey, Dick, thanks very much. You're the rules, man. We appreciate you coming on and uh, uh, have a great year. And hopefully Michigan has a great year along with it. Absolutely. Good luck for yourself, too. Appreciate it, Dick. That's Dick Honig, our rules expert on the Brandy Show. Always great to hear about the rules from Dick Honig about college football and the changes. But coming up next, you want to listen to this one. It's me and Eli Zaret going at it. Eli is going to have his own podcast coming up. It's called Eli Zaret No Filter. And when we talk, we didn't have a filter either. So stay with us. It'll be fun. The Brandy Show is a Zing Media Group production. Zing Media Group, tell your story. And we welcome now to the Brandy Show an old friend, Eli Zaret, who is dipping his toe in the waters mm-hmm. of podcast. Eli is coming up with a podcast of his own called Eli Zaret No Filter. It's great to have you on. Yeah, Jimmy. And, you know, um, we do have history, but the difference is I've kind of done stuff similar to this before, did talk radio many times. I'm a, I'm a little less new to it. Then you are a very different role for you uh, to go from being a play by a play by play guy or an analyst to doing half an hour it's just you or an hour it's just you and be extemporaneous. This is a little different art, and and you can see it's not as easy as some no. of the other things you've done that you're used to. Sitting in front of a microphone all by your lonesome is very lonesome. It is, it <laughs> but is. here's the deal: the name of your show, I think, is perfect. No filter. That's what you built your reputation on early in your career, and that's what you're kind of going back to. It's full circle for you, isn't it? Well, you know, growing up in New York, and I was fascinated by the whole business, the whole media, and Howard Cosell, just, I was just enraptured by him. I couldn't believe that you could do what he did to be so eloquent, to take a topic and say whatever you wanted about it and have a strong opinion about somebody who who might get mad at you. And I said, I was in such admiration that he, the way he spoke, the way he wrote so eloquently, I thought that's how you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to say what you think. And I didn't. And when you and I go back to, to imagine, remember Al Ackerman, who we both worked for? Right. It was either news and then you write commentary, editorial. Now it's all mixed together. So I started doing it that way and then had to realize, no, there's news and there's opinion. And so, but yes, I did become an opinionated FM sportscaster because I thought that's how you're supposed to do it. The question I have is, is that how long did it take for that to get accepted at a local level? Howard did it on Monday Night Football. Nationally, he was a figure bigger than life. For you entering a Detroit market or wherever, did you have to be, I think you started at RIF? I should start. No, that was my third. That was your third stop. I started WABX. See, I, you, I see. I see what you're getting at. Yeah. I just started doing it commentaries because that's what Howard did. And as it turns out, I started an FM radio when it was underground. People forget that 
1974, when I started, you, there was no FM radios in cars. So it was this cultish thing where you had to either go to the Mickey Shores and get the converter and screw it under your dashboard, and then your AM radio became your FM. And then suddenly, so I was doing it this way because I was being a little Howard Cosell, then overnight, the big three makes it standard equipment in cars, and suddenly FM is now in the forefront. So there was nobody else doing it. <laughs> and you're – your entrance into this business in the FM market, really, that's what ultimately got you the footing you need and the foundation to become the Eli Zarrett that you're there today because of your love of Howard early. And then it became mainstream probably, what, 10, 15 years into your career? Probably so. But, you know, uh, uh, Ackerman was kind of the local version of Howard. He was. He, he would, I mean, he would do that, that commentary in the Pontiac Silverdome every week. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, he was, he came from that era. And so I had great respect for him that way. And I was excited to be able to go there and, and, and do it. Can I give you an Ackerman story? He Please. did an interview with Jim Campbell of the Detroit Tigers through a chain link fence. <laughs> and I was down producing that for him yeah. in Lakeland and told him, Al, Let's go around and get him, you know, in a normal interview setting, over the shoulder, all that stuff. Al said, no, I want to do it with a chain link fence between us. So there was a method to his madness. There, there really, really was. And, and I, I, I was thrilled to be able to, to work there. And, yeah, it took uh, – it, it, was, it was different. But that's one of the reasons that our news director, Jim Snyder, hired me. He wanted something different. He didn't want TV news to be typical like it always, like it always was. And he wanted to put a little edginess into it. And I was very lucky to be there at that time. And, Frank, I was happy with, with, with doing FM radio. And the reason I got into TV was I got a call one day from Dennis Franklin. Now, Dennis the old Frank, Michigan yes, quarterback. number nine. Yeah. Who only got to throw nine passes a game and resents it resents <laughs> to this day. But Denny was a sales guy at Channel 4. And he said, hey, Gail Gardner is going, or Gail Granick at the time, is going to ESPN. They're looking for somebody. Come down. And so I went for an audition. And Jim Snyder put me in a little room with a camera and said, do a commentary. Did a commentary. So I was very lucky that he was looking for that type of person and brought me to Channel 4. And the other thing we were talking about in the hallway before the show, the really the one thing I think the, the part of your career that I think puts you on the, the, the launch pad to go was the Tiger baseball right before the 84 season, two years before 84. 82. Well, yeah, you, you were you, a part of that. That's yeah. I, I think but about that. But that really, that put you into, I would say, really big-time mainstream because the Tigers at that time was sparky. They were, right. they were making that move. A lot happened. You forget, and I tell people that Mort Krim, because you, when, when did you get Channel 4? 78 you got yeah, there? 78, 79. Channel 4 was struggling. They hired Mort Krim to yep. try and take him out of the, the doldrums to compete with Bill Bonds, who was killing everybody. And Mort was not doing well. He was not, he was not cutting in. But in 1982, strange things came together. I think three things. Number one, NBC came up with a show called Miami Vice. And finally, NBC had a program lineup, so now people were sampling Channel 4 News. There was a guy we had, and I think this had something to do with it. He was the graphic artist named Jim Huff. He created this pastel-looking a tableau of, of, of different colors that hadn't been on, on, on color TV. And the, th and the third thing was that the Tigers started to get good. And Channel 4 back in the day, which could never happen in these days, actually televised the games. And just 40 of them. People forget the 84 oh, times yeah. on the TV 50 times. George Callen, Al Kaline, yes, bringing the ball game. So that was, I, I think a lot came together. But the 82 Tigers, so... You were part of this story, and so I'm new there, okay? I, go there, I get there November 1980, the week that Sugar Ray Leonard fought 
Roberto Duran, remember that was the week. And so I get there at, at November 80, and by the next year, November 81, I was a weekend guy, you're the street reporter. Don Shane was great. Don Shane taught me, te- you both taught me television. You and Don taught me the nuts. You, you told me what a sound bite was. You know what it was. Here's what a sound bite is. So I was learning. <laughs> so a year I'm, I'm learning, and I guess I'm doing the weekend news and I'm getting better. And so satellites had come in a year or two before. That's why Gail left because. You know, ESPN now, they, they were expanding. The worldwide network. That's right. And so, and so, uh, now suddenly you have enough highlights. So Alan Frank, our, uh, uh, general manager said, I think we can do a half hour pregame show before the Tiger games to really sell. And it had just been Sparky and Al before that, where Al would do an interview with Sparky Anderson. And so Don Shane was a logical choice to do that show. He should have done that show. He was two years younger than me, but so good, so along the road, he was eons ahead of me. So the problem was he was just married. He's got a kid. He's very busy. He just brought Final Edition, which at the time was a brand new thing because there were actually enough highlights, thanks to satellites, that you could actually have a half-hour show of highlights, sports highlights. People forget that was amazing back then. <laughs> and so Don didn't want to do the show because he was too busy. He was had a new child. He was 28 years old. He's doing the 530 news. He's doing the final edition. He's a busy man with a family. And so he was young. He was only 28 or 29 at the time. He was 30 at the time. And so he thought that he could manipulate. He was the business. In other words, he wanted, he decided that channel four shouldn't do the show the half-hour pregame show, because he didn't want to do it. And so you both came to me because you were, you know, you were doing Don's, you know, Don was above us both (laughs) and said, and said, listen, we can't do this show. So if they ask you, Jimmy, to do it or me to do it, let's agree not to do what I'm thinking. The chances of me getting asked to do this are zero. So Don's taught me television. Sure, I'll agree. So time goes on, and apparently he's reluctant to do the show. It's too busy. He tries to get the station not to do it. That's the naivety that he was – and I'm sure he learned better years later, but he actually thought that he could shape station policy, and he couldn't. So he, dis- he, he, he doesn't want to do the show, and I get a call from Alan Frank in early 82. Maybe it was a, you know December, January 82, December 81, and he calls me downstairs, and he said, we're going to do a half-hour pregame show, and I know it because Don's told me. And he said, and you're pretty quick on your feet. He said, I'd like you to do it. And I said, okay. And Don was very upset. And you told me it was the wrong thing to do. And maybe it was, but what am I going to do? Tell the general manager, I'm not going to do a show he asked me to do. So it was a career break for me and tough for him. He then went six years to other markets doing weekends. Yeah. So, Well, my deal was on that. If they hire you and you do that, I know you're taken out of the mix from a regular work standpoint in the weekends. And basically, I start working oh. seven days a week. Oh. Because you know what they did? You remember what they did. No. To help us from a personnel standpoint, they hired Gary Danielson. Oh, yeah. And Gary came in and started doing weekends. Guess who produced his weekend shows? You did? Me. Oh. So that's why I knew that when you took the job, I knew my schedule goes from five days a week oh. to probably seven days a week, working weekends from three to midnight. Because there's six and eleven news, and we're doing Tiger highlights, but you're also doing Tiger baseball pregame. You're out of the mix from a personnel standpoint. Don's not going to do it. Al's not going to do. It. Who's left? Right, me. And they wanted to make Gary a TV guy, and he was a former quarterback of the Lions. He was still a quarterback, still a quarterback yeah. for the Lions, yeah. and that that was a big splash for them. And at that point, that's when I decided, you know what, I've got more to give. 
I've got more to do. I've got talent here. And what do I like the best? And what I like the best was play by play. I like being at the event. I yeah. didn't like being on a newscast because right. on a newscast, you do two things. You talk about what has happened or talk about what's going to happen. I wanted to talk about what was happening when it was exactly happening. Exactly right. Your action, the, to, exactly. I, I, that to me challenges me because I had to be prepared so that when it happened, I could help the listener, the viewer, whoever along with that particular play. To me, that was, you're part, you're part of the game. You're right. Exactly. And, and being prepared for the game, the, the adrenaline flows. You're, you're there for three and a half hours and you're on go. And that I found fun and, and more exciting than the six and the 11 news and getting highlights and cutting all that stuff up for, right. you know, the, the, the videotape that you the cut up. The farther you go in the career in TV, the farther away from the action you get. Yeah, exactly. So if you're an anchor man, you're, you're stuck there at 11 o'clock. You can't be at the game, although we'd go early with Sonny Elliott. Right. An hour oh, or two I love that. Ballpark. At the so Olympia. <laughs> it, so it wasn't until I worked for the Pistons many decades later that I actually said, yeah, it's so different to be part of the game instead of being before and after and doing all this. And, and what's worse than predicting what's going to happen in a game and doing previews? Hated all that. I hated all that. And that's why I got <laughs> So I started working on TV and doing uh, right. the old on TV Michigan replays right. at midnight. I did uh, high school football game of the week on Channel 56. And uh, I told them at Channel 4, look, I'm going to do this stuff. I'll take vacation days when I'm busy and when I'm doing these things just so that you know when I'm there. And I can schedule it out three months in advance. And they said, okay, that sounds okay. And once I started doing that, two weeks later, Bob Warfield, the news director, came to me and says, what day would you like to be your last day? <laughs> That's right. And I said, right. okay then. And See? off I went to do freelance stuff. And, uh, you know, you look at it at the time, you go, oh, my God. And then I look at it now and say, what a blessing you for me. You found your niche, man. You it really was what I wanted to do. The old story about find a job you love, you don't work a day in your life, I'm guilty. And yep. that's what's cool. Real quickly, let's talk about what's No Filter, Eli Zaret, No Filter, the podcast going to be like. Well, I had Jimmy King on today, and I'm going to have guests and basically just say what I think. It's just, this is a free form. And stuff happens, whether it's Urban Meyer, whether it's DJ Durkin, whether it's issues in, in – in, I love this issue that I talk about with Jimmy King of the first one, this article in Sports Illustrated about depression in the NBA and guys like, like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan admitting that they're athletes, they're under pressure, they're normal human beings. They're not just these, these icons that can deal with all the pressure. They're real human beings beings and the games are built almost to depress you because of the lifestyle because of the losing and all that and so it's fascinating to see to see social issues which is the the lack of stigma now and mental illness how it fits into sports so i love topics like that all right here's what i'm going to do now we're going to throw some topics i want quick answers okay. to this we'll go back and forth we'll call this ping pong brandy and eli what do you think uh, listen I'm, I'm getting old i'm hopefully my brain <laughs> well, real quickly work. just a few topics go just ahead. to kind of give everybody a sense of where eli's coming from the detroit lions troubles is it the fords you know yes only because no it isn't well no uh, uh, no <laughs> He, no, it's not the forts because they don't do any coaching moves. My theory is you need a genius in the organization. They never had a genius. There's got to be a genius. Got to be a coach. Got to be a general manager or the owner. No geniuses. They're still looking for. Here's my theory, and it goes back to what you said. It's not the forts. They've given them every oh, yeah. possible facility that they need to, to be successful. To me, it's their scouting. They've never put the talent in place to where they need to be to get to a Super Bowl. And along with that, that coaching. That Where's marriage. the genius That's that right. plays the scouting? The marriage between the Before players and the coaches. Real quick, a teammate of yours, did you play with Dwight Hicks? 
Yes. No, no. Dwight was later than was I was. Later? Anyway, Dwight Hicks was out of football, but Bill, he was, he was managing a health food restaurant, and Bill Walsh gave him a tryout. And so he knew somehow that this defensive back that had been rejected by two or three teams would fit into his system. That's a genius. Found a player, fit him in. Belichick, a genius. So you need one in the organization. They haven't had one yet. Okay, next topic. Old, old media versus new media. What we're doing now is podcast, new media. New media. AM, FM radio, uh, conventional TV. Dead. The Titanic heading to the iceberg. It happens every year. Look at the stats. 5% loss every year of revenue. See, I, I kind of agree because I think this whole – I see kids watching their phones. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the future. That's where this thing is going. And that's what we're podcasts a, and the streaming stuff is all right, about. We're a tribal nation now. Pro-Trump, anti-Trump. Pro-this, anti-that. And so we find our own communities and our own people and our own echo chamber. And that's what media is coming to. Roger Goodell. A great bureaucrat. Uh, 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 you know, he makes $45 million a year. He must earn it. So I have never respected any, <laughs> any uh, from Tagliabue to Pete Rozelle to him. I think they're all geniuses in their own way, but I always side with the players, and I always wind up. I think, I think he's handled the league poorly in a lot of ways because it's so – they don't take a stand. They're being, it's the tail wagging the dog. And to me, Roger Goodell's the dog of the NFL. Don't get me wrong. He has taken that. NFL into a gigantic multi-billion dollar industry. For the owners, he's been great. But from a operational perception standpoint, to me, it's the tail wagging the dog. And if I'm the dog, I don't want to get that, you just get that gotta, too deep. The bottom line is commissioners work for the owners, and therefore they can never find that balance in between the owners and the players. Play-by-play or color? Color. You like color better than play-by-play? I like color because play-by-play guys are restricted. And I looked and, and, and I and I just think that they I mean, Mario and Pemba, a guy can get hit on the head by a fly ball and will say, I misjudged it a little bit, instead of saying, My God, what a bonehead play. <laughs> so at least a commentator can give an opinion and say something about a player and his performance that the play by play guy ignores. Baseball, basketball, hockey, or football? Always been a baseball guy. Have you? And when you and I were growing up, that's all there was. NFL didn't get big until the, the late 60s. So it was baseball. I read about baseball, the numbers, the stats, the heroes, baseball. Will soccer take over? Any kind of – will make an impact in the United States as a major professional sport. No. When Pele came to the Cosmos in the 70s, Howard Cosell said, someday a uh, soccer bowl will be bigger than the Super Bowl. Didn't happen then. Ain't happening any soon. Because they don't use their hands. We're a hand-eye coordination – Type of thing. Throwing a ball, hitting a ball, catching a ball. Eli Zarrett, no filter. That's his podcast. <laughs> it's coming up. Look for it and Detroit Podcast or Podcast Detroit. I don't know. Whatever it is. Eli, thanks for being <laughs> thanks, with us. Jimmy, I will listen, man. Oh, as I listen to you. Man, what a week this was. Uh, Dick Honig and Eli Zarrett and all the other news we had. Trivia too deep. We're glad you joined us. We went over a little bit. We hope you weren't bored. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't. I had a great time. And uh, we hope you join us next week, too, because coming up on the Brandy Show, our podcast, we're going to preview Michigan versus Notre Dame, the Big Ten in college football with Detroit News football writer Angelique Shangelis. And also, I want to remind everybody to watch Inside Michigan Football Sunday mornings at 1030 on Channel 7 in Detroit. It'll be on various times during the week on Fox Sports Detroit. And if you come across my Facebook page, give it a like, if you wish, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Brandstatter. Thanks for joining us on The Brandy Show this week. Next week, we expect the same thing, even better.